Deceptions podcast. Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the... Uh... <laughs> Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. That's a clip from the 2010 science fiction blockbuster Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Elliot Page, known at the time as Ellen Page. In the clip we just heard, Page's character, Ariadne, has unknowingly been transported into the dream of master criminal Dominic Cobb, played by DiCaprio, who gives her a crash course on how to infiltrate the dreams of others via dream sharing. With this dream tech, DiCaprio and his cronies are able to glean sensitive information from the subconsciousness of their victims, using it to commit corporate theft. Inception, although dense and at times confusing, is now considered at least by director Mark, as one of cinema's greatest achievements. Even Rotten Tomatoes, the notoriously harsh review aggregation site, uh, said it was smart, innovative and thrilling and succeeds viscerally as well as intellectually. This critical and cultural acclaim is in no small part due to its focus on the mysterious phenomenon of dreams. From antiquity, right through the Middle Ages, the Enlightenment, and on into the modern era, humanity has asked the question, why do we dream? And do dreams mean something? Both Islam and Christianity have examples of revelatory dreams in their scriptures. Buddhism and Hinduism view dreams as part of the path to enlightenment. The Jewish Talmud states, a dream which is not interpreted is like a letter which is not read. Yeah, I'm a bit sceptical. I know there are plenty of dreams in the Bible, and so as someone who really does believe the Bible, I'm kind of stuck with dreams, at least the ones that are in Scripture. But do dreams continue to have significance, psychologically, physically, spiritually? Nah, maybe Probably. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash Undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out.
This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. I'm usually in the middle of my university campus or sometimes high school and I look at my timetable and realise I have an exam that day for a class I'd forgotten I was taking. I haven't been to any of the lectures, I haven't handed in any of my assignments, I know nothing. I tell you, the sense of dread I feel even recounting this is palpable. That's producer Kaylee describing a recurring dream or nightmare that she often has. It's actually a really common one. One recent survey of 2,000 people conducted by an American betting company found that dreaming about being unprepared for a test was the fourth most common recurring dream in the US. About 34% of survey participants had had this dream. In an article for Newsweek, Dreams expert Delphi Ellis said that the exam dream is particularly common for people who work to deadlines, <laughs> producer Kaylee, or are under significant pressure, producer Kaylee. Uh, I guess that's my fault. Sorry. But are our dreams full of messages and warnings? For most of human history, that's been the common view. The ancient texts of many cultures contain dream accounts that are interpreted as omens or communications from the supernatural world, from the gods, the ancestors, or the spirits. In the 19th century, dreams began to be studied more scientifically, sort of. Perhaps there's something going on in our brains that causes us to dream. Then comes along Sigmund Freud and his approach to dream analysis, coded versions of wish fulfillment, which some psychologists and sleep specialists now actually think is just a blip, a distraction that took us away from the really scientific advancement of the study of dreams. The problem about dreaming has been that it's been the preserver of sort of psychoanalysts for a long period of time, which of course 
with the best will of the world, can be only described as a subjective science. And I think many neuroscientists have stayed away from dreaming because we haven't really had the tools to look at it very carefully. That's changing. Uh, and so, for example, that's the- Professor Russell Foster, director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at the University of Oxford in the UK. Russell is an expert on all things sleep and a brilliant communicator on the subject, as you're going to hear. He's delivered TED Talks and even coached Hollywood actors on how to harness sleep for peak performance. Link in the show notes for that. Last year, Russell published the book titled Life Time. That's two words. The new science of the body clock and how it can revolutionise your sleep and health. He's also the co-author of the Oxford Very Short Introduction to Sleep, which is highly recommended. In fact, my darling buff has become sick of my sideline obsession with sleep science. Uh, and so, for example, with brain imaging studies, you can start to th- sort of look at the sleeping brain during different REM versus non-REM states. And it's during REM sleep where we have our most vivid and complicated dreams. So we said that in slow wave sleep, slow wave non-REM sleep, we're, we're processing information. But what's going on during REM sleep where we're having our dreams? And the consensus at the moment seems to be that we're processing some of our emotional issues. So... What's turned out to be fascinating, and there were some lovely studies that looked at dream content in New Yorkers after the Twin Towers were destroyed by terrorist action. And they weren't dreaming about planes crashing into skyscrapers, which would have been, in a sense, sort of a recapitulation of the event, a a post-traumatic stress response, but they were having anxiety dreams. So, for example, being overwhelmed by a tsunami or being mugged. And so this has led to the suggestion that we're dealing with our anxieties. And so, for example, some brain imaging studies have suggested that information that we've taken in during the day, sort of temporarily stored in the brain in the hippocampus, There's a a bit of it in the brain called the the amygdala, which is dealing with our emotional responses, and the neocortex, which is sort of keeping our longer-term memory. And during REM sleep, these three structures seem to interact and could be processing, processing emotional content. And of course, I mean, many people get quite anxious about nightmares and dreams. And most of the time, you don't need to worry about it at all because it's the brain doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is making sense of a very complicated, often emotionally charged world. As it turns out, the stage of sleep where we dream, REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, is essential for our functioning as human beings. According to neuroscientists like Foster, the importance of REM sleep is really only just starting to become clear. Okay, so physiologically, what's going on in sleep? Tell me what's happening in the brain during sleep and what's happening to the body. Okay. So whilst we sleep, overall, we are obviously not moving around, but there are key things going on within the brain. So our memory consolidation, you know, our ability to take in those facts during the day and then consolidate them to memory whilst we're asleep. But it's not just the retention of facts. The thing that sort of emerged in the past few years is that we're processing information. So if you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems, a night of sleep can huge hugely enhance your ability to do that. Another thing that's emerged in the past few years is the clearance of toxins from the brain that have built up during the wake state. And one particular misfolded protein called 
called beta amyloid. Its accumulation within the brain has been associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. And some very nice studies started in the Netherlands showed that with relatively small levels of sleep deprivation, you could actually detect higher levels of beta amyloid within the cerebral spinal fluid and actually deposited within the brain. And that mechanism might underpin the observation that poor sleep, very poor sleep in the middle years, can be a risk factor for dementia and Alzheimer's in later years. Now, I wouldn't say poor sleep is going to cause dementia, but I think it is a risk factor in those individuals who are vulnerable. So masses of essential stuff going on within the brain. And of course, sleep itself is divided into both the REM and the non-REM cycle. That's what I wanted to ask you about, the phases. Talk me through the phases of a, of a good night's sleep. So we go from a relaxed state and then we descend through three stages of non-REM sleep into this sort of deep, uh, high amplitude, slow oscillation, electrical waves that you can record from the surface of the skull from the, that represent the sum of activity from the brain. And it's thought that we do most of our sort of memorization and, and the processing of information during deep sleep. In fact, deep sleep is heavily defended. If we don't, if we're deprived of sleep, you actually see the following night when you are allowed to sleep, much more deep sleep. Um, so it's, it's an active de 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 defended process. So the, bo the body goes and grabs it back the next night, does it? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost, as it were, homeostatically controlled. And then, of course, you jump from the deep sleep, stage three, non-REM sleep. You go through the stages and then you hit this rapid eye movement or REM sleep, where in fact, the electrical activity in the brain looks like you're awake, except for the fact that your eyes are closed and your eyes under your eyelids are moving very rapidly under the lids, hence the, the definition of rapid eye movement sleep. But also during REM sleep, you're paralyzed from the neck downwards. So you can't move. And it's thought that because during REM sleep, we have our vi most vivid and complicated dreams, we're actually inhibiting our stuff from moving around and perhaps even acting out those dreams. There are conditions, for example, where that paralysis doesn't occur called REM behavioral disorder. And where that doesn't occur, people have thrashed out, some husbands have even killed their, their wives under those circumstances. So it's, it's actually a, a really extraordinary cycle. And you can go through five, sometimes six of these non-REM REM cycles every night because the cycle takes about 70 to 90 minutes to complete, going from the REM state back down through the non-REM and then back up to REM again. So it's, yeah, it's a complicated set of interactions within the brain involving all the brain neurotransmitter systems and an interaction between multiple brain structures. There are plenty of studies that now confirm just how important a good night's sleep is for good health. Several months ago, an article published in the journal PLOS One found sleep quality, not just quantity, influenced a raft of quality of life factors, including overall happiness, work stress, and even cardio health. Another recent study published in the journal Sleep Science linked poor sleep with increased symptoms of anxiety and depression. Sleep is a constantly evolving field of study, more than we can possibly cover in this episode. So we've linked an article in the show notes that summarises some of the latest findings. And again, I can't recommend highly enough Foster's book, A Very Short Introduction to Sleep. 
If you're an Undeceptions Plus subscriber, we'll also release my full interview with Dr. Russell Foster, which has some gold in it about how and why we sleep and how to get better at it. And he resolves a long-standing debate in the Dixon household over the ideal room temperature for good sleep. Sorry, sweetheart. I guess the golden question, and therefore answer, is around why do we need to sleep so much? I mean, for physical recovery, I think I read in your book, we probably don't need all those hours for physical recovery. And evolutionarily, it's blooming dangerous to be <laughs> asleep for eight hours. So why? Well, the last bit, you said, it's dangerous to be asleep. Well, actually, it's more dangerous to move around within an environment to which you're poorly adapted. And I think that's one of the really important evolutionary selection pressures for sleep. Essentially, way, way back, you know, we've got this internal circadian clock. And, you know, it, what it's used to, for is to anticipate the different needs of the rest and the activity cycle. And in a sense, no species is equally effective across the 24-hour day. We've almost made an evolutionary decision to be active at a particular part of the day-night cycle. And we've evolved specializations to allow us to work optimally at that time. You know, if you think about an owl, it works brilliantly at night. It does, it works far less effectively during the day. We simply don't have the sensory capabilities to function optimally wandering around our environment, you know, the natural environment in the darkness. So, so part of the evolutionary pressure, I think, for sleep has been actually to take us away from moving around within an environment to which we're poorly adapted. Now, having made that decision of specialized we then say, well, hang on, I've got to do all this important biology. So if I've been experiencing all this, you know, information overload during the day, I need to start to sort it out. So I park it. And then when I'm not moving around and I'm not taking lots more information in, I can start to process it. So it's sort of compartmentalizing stuff in time. And of course, that compartmentalization makes it really efficient. We're not flipping backwards and forwards endlessly between different sorts of physiological states. So I think, I think actually we potentially could be more vulnerable to predators. We've got pretty effective predator, you know, anti-avoidance to predators whilst we're asleep. But moving around, you know, whilst we're asleep and not being adapted to that environment could be much worse for us. There's all sorts of fascinating research being done on this type of thing. In Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, also thoroughly recommended, he has whole chapters on the difference between animals and their sleep patterns. Every animal species we've ever studied sleeps or engages in something remarkably like sleep. But not all species have every stage of sleep. According to Walker, it appears that while every species experiences non-REM sleep, so the non-dreaming stage of sleep, only birds and mammals have full-blown REM sleep. That's the dream sleep. Birds and mammals appeared later in the evolutionary timeline, which suggests that, quote, dream sleep is the new kid on the evolutionary block. Am I oversimplifying it then to see a pattern here that sleep per se is sorting out the cognition and dreams, the other aspect of sleep, are dealing with the emotion? Is that too much like a pattern or is there something in it? 
I think there's something in it. I suspect, as with everything, it's going to be more complicated than that. But I think as a shorthand to think about the different stages of sleep and why we sleep on our cognitive and our emotional behaviours, I think it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about it. Yeah. Are there people who don't dream? I mean, you meet people who report that they don't remember having dreams or almost never having dreams. But can we tell from brain imaging that they really are? It's very likely that everybody dreams. But the reason why we tend not to remember them is that we wake up naturally from REM sleep. And if we wake naturally uh, from REM sleep, we're, we're much more likely to remember our dreams. So individuals, for example, who are waking up routinely, let's say they're being driven out of bed by an alarm clock, and it's never during that last bit of sleep. It's during, let's say, slow wave sleep. They'll find it much more difficult to remember their dreams. The other thing is that individuals who are not getting sufficient sleep overall, the sleep is being compressed, and often you're just not getting the sort of, you're not waking up refreshed and then remembering from REM sleep your dreams. So I suspect everybody's dreaming, but some will not be remembering it because they're not waking up at the appropriate phase of sleep. It's not a very pleasant dream. I'm stuck in the weeds outside of an old weather-beaten house. It's all scraped paint along the walls and the weeds are really dark and thick. It's, it's also pretty late in the day. Anyway, uh, I can hear my friends and more importantly, I can hear my wife, Maya, inside the house and they're talking and everybody's having fun and just relating well to each other. But I'm on the outside and the windows are so high that I can't even see in and I can't get in anywhere, there, there's no door and they can't hear me and I can just hear them and then the sun goes down and I'm left in the dark. There are a couple of popular ways of thinking about the study of dreams, uh, represented by Sigmund Freud on the one hand and his protege Carl Jung on the other. As I said earlier, for Freud, dreams are the manifestations of repressed longings. By contrast, Jung posited that dreams serve as reflections of our waking life and are the body's way of processing the events of our day-to-day -day lives. What both theories have in common is the idea that dreams do have tangible meaning, be it repressed longing or a kind of neuro-housekeeping. So perhaps Director Mark's dream that we just heard about could suggest he's worried about being alone or he's feeling isolated or that he needs to spend more time with his wife or perhaps his boss needs to criticise him less, something like that. But I'm no dream interpreter, especially when it comes to Mark's very special kind of brainwaves. Harvard academic and psychologist Deirdre Barrett did a bunch of research on dreams during COVID lockdowns in 2020. She collected 15,000 dream accounts via a public survey and discovered that people were having very similar, vivid, anxious COVID dreams. There are clusters of similar themes, insects and bugs attacking the dreamer, natural disasters like tsunamis and hurricanes, people panicking because they don't have a mask in a crowd, being locked up in prison, dreams exaggerating our fears of isolation, and so on. Turns out most of our collective COVID dreams were kind of predictable. The collective experience of dreams was particularly important 
in the ancient world, which was altogether more community-focused rather than individualistic-focused like we are today. And while the biggest debate about dreams today is whether dreams actually matter, in the ancient world there was no question. Of course they mattered. And how you interpreted your dreams could have a huge, world-changing effect. I mean, obviously dreams are universal, but I mean, how ubiquitous was the taking dreams seriously as messages from beyond? Absolutely ubiquitous in all religions, it seems. So not just the monotheisms, but especially those. And it was also a way of regulating, you know, your expectations for your own future. You could ask for dreams that dealt with very mundane matters like who you should, well, not so mundane, who you should marry, but also who, when should you set off on a journey? Was today the right day? What sort of things should you be investing in in your business? Um, yeah. That's Bronwyn Neal, Professor of Ancient History at Macquarie University back in my hometown of Sydney. She's an expert on Byzantine and medieval Christianity. Part of her research involved understanding the social background of antiquity and the early Middle Ages, a world in which dreams were taken very, very seriously. Um, yeah. So before you go to bed, you can ask for a particular dream. Yeah. Yeah, you could. Or ask for a message in a dream. You could. And that practice is still alive in some cool. Yeah, some religious context. So were dreams then mainly private messages or mainly community? Or are you just going to say yes? No, I'm going to say mainly community, where the community started with the family. Yes. Yeah, so I would even go so far as to say there was no such thing as a private dream because there was no point to a private dream. They, they're not really reflections, seen as reflections of your unconscious or anything until Freud. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a massive insight into antiquity right there, or maybe a massive insight into the idiosyncrasy of modernity. Oh, well, yes, either way. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to go back to antiquity in this respect, actually, because it allows anyone to assume authority. You know, it, there were some checks and balances, but it gave everybody that wanted to be a prophet access to their own prophetic dreams. Dreams carried enormous weight in the Greco-Roman world and were often viewed as omens or prophetic signs of things to come. Even doctors took them seriously. Records from ancient Greece tell us physicians often attempted to interpret dreams as a way of diagnosing disease or psychological distress. Depending on who you were, dreams could also have very serious geopolitical implications. Friend of the pod, Flavius Josephus, writes in his Antiquities of the Jews that on Alexander the Great's conquest of Asia in the 4th century BC, the great Macedonian warlord spared Jerusalem due solely to the actions of high priest Jadus following a prophetic dream. Jadus ordained that the people should make supplications and should join with him in offering sacrifice to God whom he besought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Whereupon God warned him in a dream which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates, that the rest should appear in white garments, but that he and the priests should meet the king in the habits proper to their order 
without the dread of any ill consequences, which the providence of God would prevent. And when Jadus understood that Alexander was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. Flavius Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus goes on to write that upon appearing at the city gates, which were open, Alexander revealed that he had also had a dream in which Jadus had appeared to him and assured him that he would find success in his conquests. Ultimately, Alexander left Jerusalem untouched, a courtesy not afforded the neighboring cities. The story is probably untrue, but it's a cool example of how ancient people just assumed that geopolitics could be influenced by dreams. Can you give us a sense of how dreams were approached in the different social strata, wealthy versus the poor? Sure. So dream books were manuals for ordinary people to interpret their dreams without necessarily having recourse to a professional interpreter who they might not have been able to afford. So they're very simple dictionaries of symbols and a meaning. Like it could be as basic as this is a good omen, this is a bad omen. Things like, you know, seeing a frog might be a good omen for a journey. But the more elaborate dream interpretation come from professional interpreters who were attached to courts and so on, right up to the very top of society in uh, imperial courts and royal courts. They all employed professional dream interpreters and their dreams, of course, had a lot of import for the safety and prosperity of a lot of people. So they took them equally seriously right at the top levels. Seven years of bumper crops are on their way. Years of plenty, endless wheat and tons of hay. Your farms will boom, there won't be room to store the surplus food you grow. After that, the future doesn't look so bright. Egypt's luck will change completely overnight and famine's hand will stock the land with food at all time low. Noble king, there is no doubt what your dreams are all about. All these things you saw in your pajamas are a long-range forecast for your farmers. And I'm sure it's crossed your mind what it is you have to find. Find a man to lead you through the famine with a flair for economic planning. But who this man could be, I just don't know. That's a clip from the 1999 film version of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, starring Donny Osmond as Joseph. Whatever happened to Donny Osmond? The silly but strangely addictive musical follows Joseph from the Book of Genesis, who finds himself in the court of an Egyptian pharaoh who's having strange dreams that no one can interpret. Joseph, a gifted dream interpreter, has a go. In the musical, the pharaoh recites his dream in his best Elvis imitation. He dreams of seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, seven healthy ears of corn, and seven dead ears of coin. It's actually fairly close to the biblical version of events, which you can read in Genesis chapter 41, except don't imagine Elvis through the story. 
That scene we just heard is Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Egypt is going to have seven good years of harvest, followed by seven bad years. Pharaoh listens to Joseph's interpretation, which Joseph says has come from God. Egypt plans well, and the seven bad years don't result in a famine. Joseph is promoted to Pharaoh's right-hand man. It's one of several dream interpretation stories in the Bible. Daniel in the Old Testament is also celebrated as a dream interpreter. And the prophet Joel predicted, quote, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. That's a passage that the Apostle Peter quotes in the New Testament as somehow fulfilled among Christians. But... Then in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, God warns his people about false prophets who merely say they dream dreams. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? Therefore declares the Lord. I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord. I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare, the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. When it came to dreams, in the Bible the stakes were high. And the early Christians took these scriptural warnings to heart when it came to figuring out their own dreams. Okay, so let's focus on Christianity in particular. Early Christianity has values dreams as communications from beyond. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Early Christianity was careful about dreams as they'd learnt to be from the Judeo tradition of uh, especially the wisdom books. So Solomon, Wisdom of Solomon, and some of the prophets were also quite ambivalent about, or they warned people about accepting all dreams as being from the divine, and they had to be discerned. The meaning of them had to be discerned and also the source, because if God could send you dreams, then the devil or demons could also send you dreams. So Yes, because divination was, of course, outlawed in Judaism, but dreams sort of sit somewhere in that fuzzy space. Yeah, so Christian dreams are really, the theory of dream interpretation comes from Judaism but also from ancient Greco-Roman divination traditions and they allowed divination, they even encouraged it. Was there any formal difference between dreams and, say, visions or prophetic speech? Yes. Well, one lovely saying from the Talmud, from the Babylonian Talmud, is that dreams are only one twenty-fourth of prophecy. There is very small part. The Talmud is a collection of Jewish laws, civil, moral, ceremonial, with parable and history thrown in. Combined, it's about 22 volumes at the edition I'm looking at on my bookshelf right now. And the divination that Bronwyn is talking about, aside from Hogwarts' school subject in Harry Potter, is the practice of determining hidden meanings in menial everyday events. This often included trying to decode the future through things like reading the flight patterns of birds, the casting of lots with animal bones, reading into star signs like horoscopes, observing how the sacred chickens ate their food. True story. And you guessed it, 
dreams. The Bible comes down pretty hard on divination. There shall not be anyone among you who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. That's Deuteronomy. Despite all this, in both later Christian Byzantine culture and Islamic culture, ancient pagan dream techniques were put to monotheistic use, resulting in whole books being published known as dream key manuals. There is a very small part of prophecy, and it appears again in the Hadith about the Quran that dreams are a one-fortieth part of prophecy. So they were seeing as a small part, but as you know, prophecy had to be interpreted. It wasn't, at least in the New Testament, prophetic. The prophetic gift was one that had to be practised with discernment and, and maybe you'd give the prophecy and somebody else would interpret it for the community. So they were always conscious that it was a dangerous activity and it had to be regulated. So did they think all dreams were spiritually significant or just the ones that freaked you out? <laughs> Mainly the ones that freaked you out. So the more clear, the more vivid. That was more likely. And also if a prophetic messenger appeared like a saint or in the Christian times um, Mary, the mother of God, might appear, you know, those saints would look. They had to have kind of authentic appearance and they were often white. The angels and the saints appeared in white raiment. They were always beautiful. They were usually young. So they were all signs that this was a divinely ordained dream. But they recognised that dreams could be natural phenomena as well, produced by too much eating, too much drinking, or the opposite, too little food or drink. So, yes, you find this fine line between recognising that, you know, eating cheese before you go to bed might produce nightmares. But on the other hand, fasting could be a way to to bring on such dreams that did have divine significance. So prayer and fasting often accompanied monastic visions. But as far as the terminology goes, you don't get a very clear-cut distinction between dreams and visions. They're used almost, visions are usually, you know, prioritised as being more likely divine and dreams can be either. Yeah, right. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay, so tell me how this worked. Let's just say I'm a Christian in Constantinople in the 500s and I have a crazy dream. I don't know, that I get up and kill someone or something. And then I, I wake up from this terrible dream. What do I do? What would be kind of an advised process to get to the bottom of it? Mm. So if you are really a believer, you might go to your priest and ask your priest to interpret it. So priests generally had this gig, did they? Uh, it's not really encouraged, but it seems like it happened a lot, let's say that. So technically priests were more and more discouraged from doing dream divination, but in the Byzantine church, if you didn't want to just go to your own dream dictionary and, and look up what does it mean if I killed someone, and then there might be sub-meanings like if you're poor and you killed a rich person, it means this. And if you're rich and you killed a poor person or you killed a woman or you killed someone in your family, it means that. So that there could be lots of layered strands of interpretation. So you had to find somebody that knew like all the conditions. So time of year might be taken into account or what weapon you used or, yeah, particularly who, who was the victim. They all kind of contributed to. And sometimes things that you would think would be negative uh, could be interpreted very positively. Like if you killed a prostitute, that might be seen as 
you're going to enjoy a long marriage, you know, because you killed that part of your life, killed off that part of your life. So you. And I hope if you're a rich man and you dreamt about killing a poor man, you know, the message is you're going to hell if you don't repent. Is that how that worked to it? Uh, no, it's not that simple, really. <laughs> it might be. T- it might be taken as a, that means success in business. Yikes. Yeah. Even amongst those Christians. I mean, uh, there were Christian interpretations and secular interpretations. And if you were a Christian, you had a choice where you went to. There isn't a whole lot of help from the ancient church fathers on the topic of dreams. But late second and early third century theologian Tertullian, one of the brainiest converts of the period, did have something to say about dreams in his treatise titled on the soul, written in Carthage, North Africa, near the beginning of the third century. You mentioned Tertullian. Why was he um, particularly unusual? He was a standout because he distinguished between the three types of dream, the three, and this carried right through into Islamic dream law, the physical that I mentioned before, um, physical causes like eating too much, drinking too much, an imbalance in the body, getting too hot, we might add to that. I mean, we all know that if you get too hot in your bed, you're going to have more likely to have nightmares. And then the second kind was preoccupations of the mind, things that were on your mind from that day, like from work or struggles in your family, things like arguments. And then the third type, which he said were very rare, were these divinely inspired visions. He sounds very sensible. Yeah, he was a lawyer, right? (laughs) In his treatise on the soul, Tertullian said that the human soul never rests, even when the body was resting. Dreams, therefore, were the experience of the soul in the spiritual realm. He writes... When, therefore, rest accrues to human bodies, it being their own special comfort, the soul, disdaining a repose which is not natural to it, never rests. That is, the soul is awake, active and participating in the spirit world through dreams. And since it receives no help from the limbs of the body, it uses its own Imagine a gladiator without his instruments or arms, and a charioteer without his team, but still gesticulating the entire course and exertion of their respective employments. There is the fight, there is the struggle, but the effort is a vain one. Nevertheless, the whole procedure seems to be gone through, although it evidently has not been really effected. There is the act, but not the effect. Tertullian also argues that there are just natural dreams. They're not messages from beyond. They're just the emotions working themselves out in our soul. Part of his argument is that infants dream, something that others disputed. He writes, As for those persons who suppose that infants do not dream on the grounds that all the functions of the soul throughout life are accomplished according to the capacity of age, They ought to observe attentively the tremors and nods and bright smiles as babies sleep. And from such facts understand that these are the emotions of the soul as it dreams, which so readily escape to the surface through the delicate tenderness of the infantine body. Do not let it be imagined that any soul is, by its natural constitution, exempt from dreams. Sounds reasonable to me. But I asked Bromont to give me some examples of wacky dreams among early Christian leaders. 
Have you got any other favourite dreams in the uh, in the literature? Yes, I've got so many, but let me just tell you a couple of favourites. Okay, give me a couple. <laughs> so I love all the desert literature about monks, people that have mainly men, sometimes women, put themselves into complete seclusion, living by themselves in caves often, not having very much food. What they had was like brought to them by disciples and they often had dreams about sexual desire and they'd see visions of seductive women or beautiful black men coming to them and they always interpreted these as demons and these dreams as temptation dreams. Freud would have a different interpretation, of course. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> like you could just say it was normal, right? <laughs> yeah. And part of your repression, yeah. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And my favourite kind of comic dream from Gregory the Great in the dialogues is about another- That's Pope Gregory the Great, by the way. Among other things, he's known for commissioning the first large-scale evangelistic missions from Rome, sending missionaries to the dark, rainy, beautiful British Isles in 596 to convert the native pagans. Check out our episode on The Venerable Bede, a personal favourite of mine, for more on that story. Now, Gregory was great- but he sometimes weirds me out. Gregory the Great in the dialogues is about a nun who suffers from gluttony and she's eating too much lettuce. She's kind of stealing salad leaves from the garden of the monastery. She's out there picking salad leaves outside mealtime. Like it doesn't sound like complete excess, does it? <laughs> and this is a dream what Gregory himself has? Yeah, yeah, Gregory. Relax. And what's, what's the interpretation? She sees a demon sitting on a lettuce leaf. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he says, I'm going to own you if you eat this. And she, <laughs> and Gregory or the gardener comes along. It's not Gregory himself. The gardener comes along and tries to shoo away the demon. The demon says, what have I done? I was just sitting here and she came and tried to eat me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So the demon talks back in a really whiny way. Yeah. And so what's the punchline, though? <laughs> well, the moralists don't eat salad outside of mealtimes, like any kind of Food had to be eaten in common, so she was stealing, essentially. Uh, I, I would have thought it's a, less, it's a lesson against lettuce, personally. <laughs> yes, I don't eat lettuce. <laughs> Papal dreams of lettuce-thieving nuns are one thing. Some visions, though, like the one Roman Emperor Constantine received on the evening of October 27, 312, altered history. According to Constantine's own account given to the Christian historian and bishop Eusebius, shortly before the battle to claim the western half of the Roman Empire for himself, Constantine says that around midday he saw a sign of pure light in the sky in the shape of a cross. The cross was inscribed with the words in hoc signo vinces or in this sign conquer. Yes, we've got a whole episode on this, number 61. Constantine went to bed later that evening, confused and disturbed by what he'd seen, and he was visited in a dream. In his sleep, Eusebius reports, the Christ of God appeared to him with the same sign which he had seen in the heavens and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens and to use it as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. And that's what Constantine did. Where would you place something like Constantine's vision or dream? Because the sources are different. One source says it's a dream, another says it was a vision at the, uh, before the Melvian Bridge. 
That's right. So this was a really famous and impactful vision that uh, led to the Christianization of the Roman Empire, essentially. It, he saw a, either a vision of the cross or in one source it says he saw the Cairo, the first two letters of Jesus' name, and he put them on his standards, his military standards, and uh, he was told with the vision he heard the voice of God in this sign, conquer. So he put the symbols on his standards and they went to victory and managed to take over the whole Roman Empire, east and west. And there was no priest there going, oh, that doesn't sound like Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember Jesus saying that. (laughs) (laughs) No, and the weird, you know, you have to wonder, was it a cross or was it a Cairo? Like, or was it a, a sort of weird combination of the Kai with a big row letter R that made it look like a cross. Yeah, it's like too convenient, that dream. And so it has led to a few questions about whether it was maybe made up by somebody, if not Constantine, by his biographers who wrote the life of Constantine that eventually became part of the history of the whole church. Oh, you're too sceptical, Bronwyn, too sceptical. Yeah, I'm a cynic. Bronwyn isn't the only expert we've had on the show who's a bit cautious about Constantine's vision and dream account. Here's University of Nottingham's Emeritus Professor of Ancient History, Doug Lee, speaking about it in episode 61, Emperor Constantine. But the idea of a commander using the report of a divinely inspired dream or vision, promising victory, to instill morale in his troops has a very long pedigree in Roman history. And I can well imagine Constantine using something like this on the eve of a battle in which the odds were by no means in his favour for pragmatic reasons. And then when he achieved success, it was natural for him to think that it would be sensible to honour the deity in question. So the missing, the missing piece in this is why he presented his dream or vision as referring to the God of the Christians. And I think part of the answer to that is that we know there were Christian priests in his entourage by this time. And we can easily imagine them encouraging his thinking in this direction. So I think of Constantine's conversion in terms of his approaching the battle with a very traditional religious mindset except that the God on whom he pins his hopes is the Christian God. His victory then validates that trust and he begins honouring the Christian God in various ways. Whatever Constantine experienced, this changed the course of history. Across the millennia, people have been influenced by and then acted upon what they believed were divine messages in dreams. I'm not a fan, but I find the whole thing fascinating. But what about in our modern, rational, science-driven world? Are there still credible stories of people encountering spirits or even the Christian God through dreams? I hesitate. But according to an increasing number of converts to Christianity from a particular cultural background, the answer is absolutely. So stick around. I am.
In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades. And access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. Of course, when I went to Mecca, I was going there in order to pay homage to the Kaaba and to fulfill the requirements in Islam. But that night, I saw Jesus in a dream. First, Jesus touched my forehead with his finger. And after touching me, he said, You belong to me. And then he touched me above my heart. You have been saved. Follow me. You belong to me, he said. So I decided, Okay, I am not going to finish the Hajj, the pilgrimage. Whatever it takes, I am going to follow that voice. That's a clip from the Christian Broadcast Network in the US, with a translator telling the story of Ali, who took a Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, but had a dream about Jesus and decided to find out more about Christianity. He's not the only one to report converting to Christianity after having a dream about Jesus. A study published in Christianity Today magazine back in 2007 surveyed 750 Muslim converts on how it was that they came to call themselves Christians. 27% of respondents said that they had divine dreams or visions just before their conversion, with that number climbing to 40% experiencing spiritual dreams around the time they converted to Christianity. 
Another study by Mission Frontiers found a quarter of Muslims surveyed listed divine dreams, including encounters with Jesus himself as a key factor in their conversion. Muslims, in particular Shia Muslims, do have a strong cultural openness to revelatory dreams, with ample precedent found in the Muslim holy book, the Quran. Interestingly, there are patterns that can be observed in these dream encounters. An article in the Gospel Coalition observed four common factors in conversion dreams. They were, one, Jesus speaking scripture to them, even scripture they'd never heard before. Two, Jesus telling people to do something. Three, a dream or vision that led to a feeling of being clean or at peace. And four, a man in white physically appearing. As our next guest tells us, these dreams often occur in places like Iran, where becoming a Christian is incredibly dangerous. I was born in Iran, but when I was 18, uh, my uncle became a Christian. Uh, he lives here for over 50 years. Here means U.S. So something happened to him and he believed Jesus and he told me and instantly I believed. So I considered myself a Christian at the age of 18 in Iran, which was illegal. And then try and get out of the country. That's Nima Alazada, president of Revelation Ministries Incorporated, a group dedicated to helping Farsi speaking Christians navigate their faith. He's not a Pentecostal Christian. Not that there's anything wrong with that. He's a reformed Bible guy, the kind of Christian that usually has a healthy skepticism toward the mystical. That's why we wanted to chat to him on this show. He has some fascinating first-hand knowledge of a very strange thing going on in Iran at the moment. Iranian Christians are some of the most heavily persecuted in the world. The country sits at number eight on Open Door's World Watch List, which tracks the most dangerous countries in the world to be a believer. The top three, in case you're wondering, are North Korea, Somalia, and Yemen. In Iran, just 1.5% of people identify as Christian, and those who do are forced to navigate the strict laws laid down by the Islamic theocracy. Converting from Islam to Christianity is illegal and sometimes dangerous. In February 2021, Iran amended its criminal laws to include prison sentences of five years for new converts to Christianity, punishing them for, quote, engaging in propaganda that educates in a deviant way contrary to the holy religion of Islam. Despite the risks, more and more reports have surfaced of Iranians converting to Christianity following dreams. What's going on? I, want to, I mean, this episode that we've invited you to take part in is really about dreams. And I'd like you to help me think about the significance of dreams in this context of Iranians coming to believe in Christianity, because I'm not a big believer in dreams. I sort of come from a little bit of a skeptical, <laughs> Protestant, biblical approach, as I'm, I know you do too. And yet there is no denying that something <laughs> rather amazing is happening. Can you give us a general sense of what's happening? And then I want to ask you some specific questions. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, because I was 
not really believing in dreams even before I was a Christian because in my family was a big thing. I mean, in the whole society in Iran, it's a big thing because when you look at Islam also, dream plays a good role in Islamic teachings. In Islam, there are three types of dreams. Good dreams from Allah, bad dreams from Satan, and a third type that comes from the mind of the dreamer. As Bronwyn mentioned earlier, it's pretty similar to Tertullian's early Christian dream theory. Here's a commonly cited hadith, which is a statement of the Prophet Muhammad. It reads, The Prophet said, A good dream that comes true is from Allah, and a bad dream is from Satan. So if any one of you sees a bad dream, he should seek refuge with Allah from Satan, and should spit on the left for the bad dream will not harm him. According to Brahman Neal, if Muhammad appeared in a dream to a believer, it was thought to guarantee that it was a true dream, since Satan was unable to disguise himself as the prophet. Iranians love dreams, and some dreams are considered spiritual and prophetic. And, you know, Muslims believe these dreams are given by God. Some believe Allah some don't believe in the God of Islam, they have their own God. Still, they think, you know, that higher power is giving them directions and guidance through these dreams. And they have books coming out. I remember as a kid, there were so many books for dream interpretations. Like if you see a snake, okay, that's could be a treasure somewhere. If you see a, a tooth coming out of fall, someone you know, in, in your family will die. If you see fish is money, things like that. It was a whole book. So you can, it's safe to say that Iranians really pay attention to their dreams and try to interpret it. So then one would imagine Iranians with that dream culture in the background, but being devoted to Islam, would have Islamic dreams. But the reality is people are having Jesus dreams so uh, what? tell me about the Jesus dreams that you know about and the, the effect that it's having. Ah, oh, there are so many, so many, countless number of stories I heard. Even in Iran, the one great story was one day, it was a big church in Tehran, and I was part of the you know, youth group there trying to do some discipleship. But the big leaders, they are particularly from the Muhammad's tribe. Uh, they're very Muslim. They're very Muslim. So he came to church. He came to church, walked in, and he said, where is the cross? Show me the cross. And they said, okay, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Uh, he said, I had a dream, and in my dream, Jesus showed me a big cross and told me, go and follow that, find that, and worship that. And that's how he came to us. And that was really crazy. And then Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, one of our members texted me and said he had a dream. And in his dream, this is that the first dream, the first kind of dreams, I would say, is a good dream, like this one. He texted me and said, I had a dream that even now I'm hearing people coming out of Islam to Christianity because of the dream they see. And that's good. Uh, I remember in a meeting we were talking about dreams because there is a TV channel, Christian TV channel, unfortunately, offering Christians to 
come on live TV and tell them about their dreams and they would interpret them on the spot for them. And all sorts of crazy messages they give people because of that. But we were discussing that and I said to these guys that, look, dreams could be meaningful if they lead to glorify God. If someone comes to me and say, I had a dream that I need to follow Jesus, he's the only way to salvation, I would say definitely this is the dream you got from God. But if someone comes and say, you know, I had a dream to go and beat someone, obviously, uh, I said, don't pay attention to that. It happened to me. It happened to my my aunt. It happened to my cousin. It happened to my friends. Uh, so many, actually. And then I'm a reform. I'm a very reformed Christian. And yeah, you're a Bible guy. You're a good Bible guy. I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to, and. So dream always was part of the Pentecostal church too. So they, they not only dream, they have visions, like we're praying, then they say they saw this vision. So I was always against this. And then we saw so many people are having dreams and coming to Jesus. We cannot say, no, that was not a good dream. So, yeah, you know what I mean? I do. Can you give me any other examples of anyone you know that you're confident to tell us the content of the dream and the effect that it had in bringing them to Jesus. Yes. So my father had a dream. So I was praying for about 16 years, about 16 years. But he was rejecting it. He was a Muslim. He was trying to be a devout Muslim. And then he had a dream that a person in a white, usually is like that. It's very interesting that so many people see Jesus in a white dress, very peaceful, very calm, approaches them, say, don't be afraid, and introduce himself as Jesus. And then he said to my father that Nima is right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was preaching to him. I was preaching to him for 16 years. and Or, or for others, Jesus would appear and say, I am the life. Nima has direct knowledge of this stuff, and not just because of his work. He himself had a dream of Jesus. Funny enough, I had a dream of Jesus, and then I became a Christian myself. Mine was not really spectacular. I got a picture from one of my friends that was a baby Jesus and Mary. That night, same night, I had a dream about Jesus. It was not a very, I mean, it was not like Jesus coming to me in a white robe, telling me to do something, but I could see that Jesus in my, is in my dream, and it was very strange for me. And then the next thing happened, when I woke up in the morning, my mom was talking to my uncle, who was in the US. She hung up and said, you know, your uncle just revealed to me that he had become a Christian. So that news with my dream for the very that night, uh, it was kind of interesting for me, drew me closer to know more about Christianity. It's weird, right? I asked Nima to help me process it. Have you got any theories as to why it's happening? <laughs> I mean, thinking theologically, why is this happening? In dreams, why is God using that method? Yeah, yeah. So I believe personally that even back in the Old Testament, dreaming and all these things was not really norm. 
we see you know incidents that even God's enemies you know, see dreams. But even in the New Testament, we see Paul, Peter, and a few others see dreams. But I believe in the New Testament, when the Word of God is written and available to us, we don't need dreams. But back in the Old Testament, God used different means to communicate with his prophets and his own people. But I believe still in countries like Iran, where the Word of God is not legally available, and we can say that the famine of the word is in places like Iran and other places, God will use anything he wishes to, you know, dreams, miracles, anything. I don't, I'm not a cessationist. I don't think God cannot do these things. He will. But I would say this is not the way God communicates alone. So his word primarily is what we need. So if someone needs a word from God, he needs to go or she needs to go and read the Bible, if she or he needs to hear it loudly, she or he can read it out loud, as one of my teachers used to say. Mm -hmm. So it's everything in it. So everything is in the Bible. But we see, and we cannot deny it, that many, many people, especially from Iran, are coming to faith because they had a dream about Jesus. You say especially Iran. Do you know this to be happening in other Islamic countries? Afghanistan. Yes, Afghanistan, I've, I've heard. Not, I mean, yeah, that's it. Uh, but I'm sure there are many people that we don't know. Um, my ministry is focused on Iranians and a little bit of Afghanis. So I'm sure there will be somewhere else too. I want you to imagine, because there are, uh, skeptical listeners, listeners who aren't Christians, and they're listening to this episode about dreams. And they probably like the generally sceptical tone that I've offered through the, uh, through the episode. But they hear all this stuff that you're saying about Jesus appearing in dreams, and they just don't believe it. Have you got a sense of what you might say to my sceptical listeners about this remarkable phenomenon? Yeah, because I was one of them. I was one of them about Christianity itself. I was playing basketball, forming my own God, not caring about religion at all, like Islam, Christianity, and all of this. For me, it was the same thing, one thing. And then things happened to myself. So first thing I would say to those people that are now spectacle is that watch out. <laughs> it can happen to you, you know, because this is something is spiritual. So we believe that there is a spirit of God moving around. And it can happen to you in miraculous ways. Because we are body and we dreams are also real. Every day, every night, we see so many dreams. We may forget it, but we cannot not having dreams. So we dream about many things. According to your scientists, you can read like Carl Jung or Freud. They have different theories on what is actually happening in the brain. But... I believe because brain is part of our body and we have unconsciousness, God can use that. God can use our own self to, to wake us up. And I would say if people are really looking for the truth and willing to find out about the truth, just ask, ask God, ask the higher power, just show them the truth. Because I asked that night, God, show me the truth. And I had that dream. 
So God can come into your dream and use that. Let me say I wasn't a fan of this topic. It was producer Kaylee's suggestion. Or was it director Mark? It was Mark. It was Mark. <laughs> it was Mark. Oh, of course it was. Good suggestion. This is the sort of stuff I dream up. Oh, that makes sense now. I just remember needing a whole lot of persuasion. I'm not exactly a cessationist. That's someone who thinks the miraculous spooky stuff in the Bible has ceased. But I'm pretty close to that view in practice. The history of this stuff, I love. The modern application, I'm not so sure. And I would hate it, dear listener, if you, after this episode, started to interrogate your dreams and tried to work out what God is saying to you. That's not the point of this episode. As far as I'm concerned, dreams are mostly accounted for by the stuff that Professor Foster told us at the top of the show. Sleep, per se, helps to sort out memory and cognition, and dreams in particular process our emotional life. But I've watched for years, this phenomenon going on in Iran and elsewhere among Muslims. And I'm willing to admit, I think the real Jesus is appearing to people in their dreams. I can't believe I said that out loud. That's a wrap for Season 9 of Undeceptions. We hope you've enjoyed the episodes. Let us know by sending us an audio message at undeceptions.com. We love hearing your voice. And give us a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts if you want to see us keep rising in the charts. We're going to be back in September for Season 10, which we're already working on. We'll be talking Lord of the Rings, memory and ageing, deconstructing and reconstructing faith, violence in the Old Testament, and maybe, just maybe, if Director Mark gets his way, angels. And keep an ear out for some sneaky singles we're going to put in your podcast feeds over the next few weeks in the off-season. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Undeceptions and want more, why not subscribe to become an Undeceptions Plus member? For just $5 Aussie a month, which is hardly anything really, you'll get loads of bonus material beyond the weekly podcast. Check out the details at undeceptions.com forward slash plus. And some of you may want to support us further with a gift. We would love that and we could really do with it. More and more, it seems people are hungry for this podcast. Someone now downloads an episode of Undeceptions every 30 seconds. I love that. But the whole thing costs a bomb. The reason it sounds like it does isn't because of me. My bit is pretty easy. It's because of the wonderful team I list at the end of the show. So if you can support this team, please head to undeceptions.com and click the donate button. You can't miss it. Thanks so much. See ya.
Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Dreamer Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alistair Belling is writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston, my wonderful assistant. Santino DeMarco is chief finance and operations consultant. And editing is done by Richard Humwe. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for helping to make this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast. Friend of the pod, friend of the plod, (laughs) friend of the plod.